From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. A lot of it is an art as much as a science, the assumptions made about the kinds of people who will or won't show up to vote. And so if a different electorate actually shows up and votes, well, those are going to give you different <laughs> results than what you were expecting or what the polls had predicted. That's Amy Walter. She's the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and one of the premier political analysts in the country. Each week, she covers campaigns and elections on PBS NewsHour. She's also a frequent Sunday show panelist on NBC and CNN. Walter is an expert on the nitty-gritty of campaigns, from the top-tier Senate races to the most overlooked House races. She joins me to discuss the latest midterm polls and whether we should trust them. Plus, what could change in the days between now and Election Day? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Dustin, who says, Hi, Preet. In a scenario where a former president, Donald Trump, let's say, faces criminal charges, what would you expect the jury selection process to look like? It seems that nearly every potential juror could be struck on the basis of their political leanings or voting history? Well, that's a great question, Dustin. Um, We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because Donald Trump has not been charged criminally in any forum. However, we can get some sense of some of the difficulties that arise based on looking at the trial that's currently underway in the city of New York, the criminal case of the people against the Trump organization. As you may recall, that case was brought some time ago. The former CFO of the business organization, Alan Weisselberg pled guilty. He'll be a star witness at the trial. The trial is currently underway in court in Manhattan, and jury selection took place last week. Now, there's a critical distinction between a case against the Trump organization and any future hypothetical case against Donald Trump himself, and that is a distinction that has been painfully described to the jurors. The judge has said, and the parties have said, particularly the prosecutors, this is not about Donald Trump. This is about his business. So feelings you have about Donald Trump may not be quite as relevant in that criminal case, as they might be if Trump himself, the person, were on trial for criminal charges. But let's review some of the things that happened in jury selection, because even though it's not Donald Trump on trial, 
It's his organization, and it bears his name. Remember, the key issue of whether or not a juror can sit is not whether or not he or she likes or has a good opinion of the defendant, but whether or not the juror can be fair and impartial. And that's a conclusion that the parties and the presiding judge comes to after hopefully a pretty detailed voir dire process, questioning of the jurors, trying to ferret out biases, and finding out if they can be fair and impartial, even if they know something about one or more of the parties in the case. And it may surprise you, and it may be somewhat controversial, some of the things that some jurors who actually were seated in the ongoing trial had to say about Donald Trump. Here's a person who became seated as juror number eight, who said, quote, honestly, I used to think he was funny before he was president. Then he started acting a little crazy and narcissistic. That's the only reason I didn't like him as president, not so much policy. So that person was actually seated by Judge Murchan, who said, you know what? The juror kind of liked him. He disagreed about how he conducted himself as president, not about him overall. And the judge concluded that even though that person had some feelings about Donald Trump, he could be impartial and fair and was seated on the jury. One woman who was also chosen to sit on the jury, said, I didn't vote for him. And I would have gone for some different Supreme Court justices than the three that Trump picked. So that goes to part of your question. I don't think it's the case that most judges would find that simply their voting history or who they voted for in a particular election would cost them a seat on the jury if they otherwise made clear and the judge found that they could be fair and impartial and base their decisions and final verdict on the facts as presented and the law as instructed. Now, there were other people who were more dramatic in their statements about Trump, and they were not seated. For example, there was one juror who was excused after saying that Trump made him sick to his guts. This is another prospective juror who said, quote, I think Mr. Trump has no morals. I think he thinks only of himself. I think he is a criminal. That person also wasn't seated. And just to give you one more example, there was a prospective juror who said explicitly, there is no chance in hell she could be impartial. And she said further, he's guilty in my mind, whatever the case is, anything he does, anything his corporation does. So that's a surefire way not to have to sit for six or eight weeks on a jury considering a case against Trump or Trump's company. So look, if there ever is a criminal trial against Donald Trump, whether it's in Fulton County, Georgia, or in Manhattan, or in the federal district court in DC or someplace else, it will be more of a challenge than we've seen in typical cases because Donald Trump is one of the most familiar names in the world, not just the country. And most people have some view about him one way or another. But we have a rigorous voir dire process. We have parties who are able to uh, strike jurors. Very famous people have gone to trial before. And by and large, those trials have been fair. So let's not get ahead of ourselves, but I thought it was an interesting question that maybe, just maybe, we'll have to think about down the line. This question comes in a tweet from Rob, a.k.a. Hot Take Johnny. I don't know how Rob is a.k.a. Hot Take Johnny. You would think it would be a.k.a. Hot Take Rob. But anyway, Rob, Rob Hot Take Johnny asks, could the DOJ already have indicted Trump under seal for the stolen documents as to not want to have it announced within 90 days of an election? Do you see that as plausible? Hashtag ask Preet. Short answer is no. I don't see any reason for them to do that. Often you indict someone under seal, generally speaking, when you have enough evidence to get the grand jury to indict, 
but the person is not available to be arrested, they're abroad or a fugitive somewhere, or you're trying to find other people who are connected to the crime, and you don't want to let the other people know that you have someone under indictment. So sometimes you'll obtain an indictment under seal for those reasons, because you're concerned if word gets out, the person may flee, or co-conspirators may flee, or there's a risk of danger to the community, and you want to get all your ducks in a row before you unseal an indictment. The case of Donald Trump with respect to the documents at Mar-a-Lago doesn't, to me, seem to present any of those scenarios. So I don't think so. It's also not clear that they're done with their investigation. There continue to be reports about the Department of Justice trying to see if there are other documents that have still been retained, even not at Mar-a-Lago, but some other places. It sounds like there are discussions going on between Department of Justice prosecutors and people who represent Donald Trump. And although I'm not positive of this at the moment, another thing you should know is to the extent they are still issuing grand jury subpoenas in connection with the investigation relating to the documents, that means there's no indictment. You are not allowed to use a grand jury once you've obtained an indictment to get further evidence with respect to the things that you indicted the person on. And also, I guess you would be concerned that even though you can indict someone under seal, and even though grand jury proceedings are supposed to be secret under penalty of criminal prosecution, why take the chance that you have an indictment under seal shortly before an election if there's no compelling reason to do so? If there's going to be an indictment, just seek it after the election. So I think, you know, it's an interesting question, but I do not see it as plausible. Finally, this question comes from Twitter user Korja, who writes, Twitter, should we stay or should we go now? As you may know, this is a complex and existential question posed by the wise and ancient philosophers known collectively as the clash. Look, I think it's a free country and everyone has his or her own choice to make about staying or going for what it's worth. I'm staying. I'm not going to see that platform or any other platform to people who are against democracy or who don't uphold the values that I think are important in the country. Whether I'll pay the $8 a month to remain blue check verified is an open question. So if I could, related to the question you ask about Twitter, I would invert the lyrics of that famous Clash song. If I stay, there will be trouble. And if I go, it will be double. We'll be right back with my conversation with Amy Walter. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, 
They can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. As a young political reporter, Amy Walter covered the House of Representatives for the Cook Political Report. Now, 25 years later, Walter is the editor-in-chief of the publication, which is known for its nonpartisan, in-depth political analysis. Walter joins me to discuss the midterms and what has changed in her quarter century covering politics. Amy Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about all things politics, but I should let folks know that we're actually recording this a little bit in advance, Monday, October 31st, which happens to be Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. So do you dress in a candidate's outfit? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's always that awkward time of year for me, especially for the children in the neighborhood, because I forget it's an election year. I forget that it's Halloween. (laughs) And it's always, you know, the night before or the day of running into the CVS saying, oh, man, I need to get some candy or every child on our block is going to hate you say, oh, it's that house. Exactly. I used to hate those houses. So did you get candy? Did you get enough candy for this year? I think so. And you know what? It looks like it's going to rain, which is so disappointing. So we may not get that many. And the problem is that then that leaves us with mounds and mounds of candy in the house. But not mounds, because mounds is a terrible candy bar. That is incorrect. I would love if we had mounds. (laughs) The problem is- I I don't like mounds. People are not going to be happy with me about that. Listen, this is the problem. I think people have, for years now, attacked mounds and Almond Joy and other coconut-filled treats. And now they aren't- on a bipart. <laughs> They're not yeah. in the baskets anymore and are whatever the, you know, people's Halloween bags. And so now all they are are Reese's. And I just think there's an over reliance on Reese's products on Halloween. I'll say it. An over reliance. Mm hmm. Because See, it's at safe. Some point we're going to have to release. We're going to have to release. Yeah, we're going to have to. That we can the, do this. Yeah, I have a lot of opinions about this, pre- yeah. but that's not why we're talking. But I, if you ever want to talk about 
Halloween candy and preferences and issues I have, I'm happy to get into it. So we're we're taping this about eight days before the midterm elections end, because there's been voting occurring already. I voted in my home state of New York uh, this past weekend. First, what is your life like in the final eight days before an election of this importance? Well, it's both hectic and calm. One, at some point, this is the most of the work, especially for many of the consultants, the pollsters, the ad makers, is is done, right? The last few days, you're kind of just fly, you're not flying blind because you've been paying attention to it for quite some time, but you're not getting much in terms of, you know, how new numbers, new data points, unless you're in a state where you get updates on early vote. Uh, but even there, I think it's a it's a hard thing to try to read those early votes accurately, in part because we've just had a, a comparison to either an election that was a complete anomaly, one in 2020 that happened during a pandemic. And in 2018, some of these states did not have um, early vote or vote by mail, or at least did not use it particularly. Voters weren't particularly attached to it. Now they are more so. So you, some of it is getting a feeling from movement that you've seen up until this point. Some of it is paying attention to what you're hearing on the ground from folks in the field there. And then it is just, as I said, sort of looking at the last set of of polling, the last ads that have been cut and getting trying to discern what those are telling us about where those final few vote well, two things. One, where those final undecided voters may go. And two, how likely it is that, you know, one side's voters turn out at a higher level than the other side. Right. Can you just before we get into the details of what you think is happening right now and what the trends are, what is the mission of the Cook Political Report? Oh, thank you for asking that. So yeah. we were started by Charlie Cook back in the 80s. He was somebody who had worked on campaigns and in the Senate and worked also for a trade association and wanted to give folks who were in the business, right? So political action committees and others who were following politics or donating to politics, a sort of a consumer buyer's guide, right? Consumer reports guide to politics that was not really focused on, you know, do you wear a red jersey or a blue jersey or do you care mostly about issue X or issue Y so that everybody across the ideological spectrum, regardless of not just party, but your position on a whole lot of issues, could have one place to go to that would be a fair assessment of the playing field and of the races. And we've been, as I said, doing that since the 80s. So you are, am I correct, now the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report? You are correct. So at what point is Charlie going to let you call it the Walter Political Report? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to cause problems. I'm just asking. I know. I know. Listen, you don't change an iconic brand, though, certainly not overnight. And the Cook Political Report brand has 
been around for such a long time. Charlie built it into, you know, such a well-respected institution that it, to me, made little sense to try to, you know, put that away and start fresh. Okay. You're very diplomatic, and I take your answer. Mm, it's true. At, at face value. Okay. All <laughs> right. So here, here's my, my first question. is so, so we're eight days out, as I said. Generally speaking, in elections like this, how much movement do you see in the last eight days? Or what are the kinds of things that cause there to be a lot of movement and a different result from what might be most easily predictable right now, whether you're talking about the House, whether you're talking about the Senate, Mm. Even sometimes in presidential years, right. people talk about the phenomenon of the October surprise, especially when there's early voting, as there is in so many states. And a lot of the vote is in. I think 20-something million votes are already in around the country. What is the room for a lot of movement and change in the final days? That's a really good question because I think we have to sort of put out there an interpretation or we have to describe what it means actually, to say things are moving versus, you know, sometimes we say, oh, the polls moved very quickly or right. the outcome was different from the polls. You know, the polling is also trying to capture, and we always talk about it being a snapshot in time, but a lot of it is an art as much as a science, the assumptions made about the kinds of people who will or won't show up to vote. And so if a different electorate actually shows up and votes, well, those are going to give you different <laughs> results than what you were expecting or what the polls had predicted. So it's as much as when we talk about movement, it could be as much as, oh boy, I guess, again, just hypothetically, wow, I guess not as many Democrats turned out as we thought would. Or boy, this is what we saw in 2020, there were a lot of Trump Republicans out there that showed up that weren't sort of uh, seen in the polling up into that right. point. Assume the following hypothetical. In a scenario in which, you know, we don't have that in this country, in which we had 100% voter turnout, so that part of the predictive aspect of this is not figuring out who's going to come and who's not, but everyone's coming. Would polls be incredibly more accurate? So uh, another great question. We saw in 2020, highest level of turnout Right. We'd seen in many, many, many years in all types of communities, rural communities, urban communities, suburban communities. And it actually was it, it, it made it actually harder to poll in some ways because of this. A lot of what we do, how we do polling right now is modeling. Right. And we know that one of the biggest or best predictors of you voting is whether you voted before. And so right. if you have, if you voted two out of three times, four out of four times, I can I could put a whole lot of data about you together and make a really good prediction of how you're going to vote in this upcoming election. But if you've never voted before or if you voted maybe once in the last 15 years, I, that's going to be harder to do. And I think that's part of what happened in 2020, which was you look at some of these states and say, well, if there's really high turnout in a state like Arizona – or a state like Texas, with so many Latino voters, many of whom are younger, this is going to be great for Democrats, right? More, la more Latinos equals better for Democrats, except when it's not always the case, right? <laughs> um, it, that works until it doesn't. And what we saw, in fact, some of the movement we saw in 2020 was 
urban areas that gave Trump a higher percentage of the vote in 2020 than in 2016. Now, granted, we're talking about, you know, going from 9% of the vote to 14% or something, right? It's not like he won in these areas, but we know that a four, five, six point shift in these communities can have a, a big impact. Um, yeah. And so I think what you would see, Preet, is that you, if people had to show up in every election or else they would be fined, like in Australia, it might be easier then because we would have the data year after year after year. And we wouldn't have to go through all of the machinations we do now in polling with saying, how likely is it that you're going to vote? How how enthusiastic are you to vote? And then try to make assumptions based on that. Right, because there's a whole second level that's right. of uncertainty. It's not just how is someone going to vote, but whether they are going to vote. Yeah, I mean, that's as, mo- as important as anything else. Are you yeah. going to even show up? So what about for candidates? Do you have a view as to whether or not, given how long you've been observing this field, that in the last week, should a candidate be trying to persuade people who are otherwise going to vote to vote for them or focus instead and spend resources on getting the people who already want to vote for him or her to come to the polls? Or the third would be to keep them from voting for the other person, (laughs) which is which is often the case. Right. Especially if you are a candidate who is deeply unpopular already. And so what you have to convince voters in that case is to say, look, you're not going to say it exactly like this, but you don't really like me. That's okay because this person, if you vote for them, they're going to make things that much worse for you. Right. So you can vote for the person over here, me, kind of a jerk, but at least I'm a jerk that's going to give you change, or at least I'm a jerk that's going to make the economy better. Who's, who's, who's pro-choice. Right. Or whatever it, whatever it is, that is the other piece of the pie, right? Or discouraging. Right. Which is the thing that in the last week they should spend resources on. Right. So every every place is going to be a little bit different, right? And each campaign is looking at, all right, where are the places where we feel more confident? Where are the places we don't feel as confident? Some of it, we as analysts and voters can see, right? Because we watch TV and we see these ads and we say, oh, well, they're talking about abortion. That They must think that that's the issue. Well, they're also sending out hundreds of very targeted digital ads that you and I may be getting completely different ads in our feeds, right? Because of who we are, where we live, you know, all of those different things or the kind of mail we're getting in our mailboxes. So we assume certain things based on, it's sort of like an iceberg, right? The stuff we can see, but there's a whole bunch of stuff underneath that only the campaigns and probably their opponents are able to see what they're doing. If you look though at, Just at its core, what is the challenge if you are a Democratic incumbent in any of these battleground Senate races? Okay, what is your number one? The two things you need to do. One, you need to make a separation with Biden slash the national political environment. Right. People in your state not feeling great about Joe Biden. So your job is to make sure that they make that distinction. Me I'm my own person. I'm not him. Okay. The second is, yes, you are frustrated with the status quo, but my Republican opponent over here is going to make it worse. 
is not going to make things better because he or she is fill in the blank, right? Extreme, anti-choice, wants to cut your Social Security. That's what you're seeing in all those ads. If you're Republicans, you have a a much simpler message. If you watch the Fetterman-Oz debate, um, it got a whole lot of coverage because of what Fetterman said or didn't say or how he said it. But to me, the most salient piece is how Dr. Oz closed that debate, right? Are you feeling good right now? Are you happy with the way things going? Do you like spending twice as much on groceries? If you don't, you know who to vote for, right? Vote for me. Right. It's a version of, are you are you better off? Are you better off than you were, right? Are you mad? Are you frustrated? Do you think things are headed off the wrong track? Well, then here's what you do. You don't keep going with the party that's brought you here. You go with the different side. So that's what, you know, Republicans are, are working very hard to do. You know, one of the reasons I asked the question about the focus being on getting your base out or trying to persuade the persuadables is that we had former Senator Al Franken on the podcast last week. And we talked about this discrepancy that we've also seen in polls that say this one New York Times Siena poll that said 71% of Americans think that democracy is at risk, but only 7% of Americans think it's the most important issue or the most important problem. And my question was, should candidates on the Democratic side be focusing on the threat to democracy or should they be focusing on kitchen table issues like inflation, gas prices, and those sorts of things that seem to be at the top of most people's lists? And he said, look, what they really need is to get their people to turn out. And if talking about democracy that upsets a lot of their base gets them to turn out, then that's the right thing to talk about. Not necess- And I'm simplifying a little bit. Not necessarily kitchen table issues, which obviously should also be talked about as well. Do you have a reaction to that? So... You know, the the great thing about campaigns is you don't have to do just one yeah, thing, yeah. you know, um, especially these Senate races where I mean, these are hundreds and millions of dollars that folks are spending. You can do a both and you can have a both and conversation. I think the fact that we're not see in some cases, well, let me put it this way. In some cases, there is a direct link made between the Republican candidate and January 6th. And it's been made and made easier by the fact that that candidate, that Republican, in the case of there's a campaign in Ohio, that candidate actually was there on January 6th, right? Versus trying to make the link between the rhetoric or the party affiliation of a candidate and democracy or January 6th. That's the, so again, I think, I think it, it resonates with voters the closer that candidate is to the issue. Donald Trump, it's an easier case to make against Donald Trump, right? Because we all saw him on January 6th, and we know what happened on that day and those days afterward. For a candidate who's been endorsed by Donald Trump or who says, I don't I don't think, uh, you know, the, all the ballots were counted correctly, I don't know that that's going to resonate with an electorate that feels today pretty similarly about this issue as they did at the end of 2021. Help help explain something that you've talked about with respect to making predictions in statewide races. You wrote recently, quote, as I've written maybe 100 times before, it's better to look at vote share than the margin when assessing the competitiveness of any of these statewide contests, end quote. What's the difference between vote share 
and the margin. So, and thank you for that. You, you're giving me many soapboxes <laughs> to, to stand on. Candy for Halloween, and now this. Well, you're just um, you're wrong. You're wrong about the coconut candy. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna agree to disagree on this one. But I'm I'm correct. We should poll it. We should poll well, it. Well, listen. I know I'm gonna lose that poll, but the one I really, <laughs> really want to poll on is how people feel about Reese's versus other. I just don't feel like there's enough variety anymore. Okay. That's, That's what I'm. Okay. That's fair. All right. Thank you. So on vote share, as we know, in most states, you know where you don't have a runoff, uh, the person with the most votes wins, right? You can win with 48, 49%. But the goal is in every state to try to get to 50%. And unless there's a significant third-party candidate, most people who win, win with 50% or more. Okay. So when you look at a poll, I feel the, the problem in the way that they're reported, and even on the aggregation sites, right? If you say, I want to look up on one of these real clear politics or 538, what's going on in Ohio? What's going on in Pennsylvania? And they'll say, oh, the Democrat is up by two on average. The Republican is up by three on average. But to me, the more important question is, how close is the candidate to 50%, especially if that candidate is an incumbent, right? If you're a candidate that's leading in the polls, you're an incumbent at 46% and you're ahead of your opponent by two points, and it's two weeks from election day or wherever we are, eight days from election day, that's pretty bad, right? Because by now, you should, what it's telling me is you've consolidated all your voters, but everybody else is still undecided on you. And those people are going to break right. against so, so the, you. So the, yeah. If you're looking at another poll, like, let's look at Ohio. Ohio's a place where Tim Ryan has been able to keep that that race has been neck and neck all along. And we say, Ohio, how could that possibly be true? It's such a Trumpy state. It's so Republican. One is Tim Ryan's running a very good campaign. J.D. Vance, a Republican, is running a terrible campaign. But then I look at the vote share and Tim Ryan, for whether he's been ahead or right now where he's Again, by the margin, a couple points behind, his overall vote share has stayed around 45, 46%. In other words, he may already be at his ceiling, right? But where's J.D. Vance? Why isn't he also at his ceiling? J.D. Vance has been actually growing, right? Same with Dr. Oz. The question is, where do the undecided voters go, right? And that goes to your question about, well, all right, so if you're both at 46%, don't those undecided voters break evenly and maybe both of you have an equal chance to win? You would then have to know what's the makeup of the undecided voters. Usually, they're more primed to vote for change than they are for the status quo. The second is how Republican or Democratic is that state, right? Right. So in Ohio, what's the change because it's an open seat? A change would be voting for the out party, right? Tim Ryan is the party of Joe Biden. Right. So that's a better way to to think about that. Voting for the and the and then the partisanship of that state. The other thing I look at is, which is why I, I was going through before I got on with you, the the um New York Times polls today in those different states. And what I found really interesting is you have like here in Arizona, Mark Kelly is is leading 
51 to 45. Again, that goes to whether it's vote share or margin, Mark Kelly's in a pretty good position there. Yeah. But uh, the job approval rating of Biden is just 36 percent, which he's that is I don't know that I've seen a candidate able to outpoll his party by that big of a margin. That's uh, impressive. So, but, so but, but why is he at 51? Sorry, in other words, are you saying it's maybe a false? So that's the question. So what I'm saying is this is this is the central tension in this election. If we say at its core, what is it? That for how many years has it been? Feels like the last 10 years or so, our politics has only become more nationalized, right? It is harder and harder for an individual candidate to differentiate themselves from the person who shares their party affiliation and that person is on the top of the ticket or is in the White House. So when you're presidential, when you're a Democrat and the president is at 36 percent in your state, you know, that's a that's a very difficult thing to be able to overcome traditionally. So either. Right, but if he's at 51 percent. It suggests that, that he's doing that. Exactly. So okay. then it's not to suggest that he's standing on a house of cards. You're not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is this is one. It's also the important thing about polling is this is one poll. Right. So I want to be careful that we don't say, oh, OK, well, this one poll says this. So this is how it must be. There's a lot of data out there suggesting that, yes, the race in Arizona is very close, but Mark Kelly likely has a bit of an advantage here. I don't know if at the end of the day, and this is why I can't wait for election day, is we're going to find out just how close that rating is, the job approval rating is, to the final vote that Mark Kelly gets. Is one data point in Arizona the fact that Barack Obama is coming? What does that tell you? Well, one, it tells me that he does not come with the same baggage that Joe Biden does. Uh, Two, he is still the candidate that can appeal to, has a has a relationship with younger voters, voters of color. And again, he, he can come into the state, do the rallies without getting all the other baggage that comes with it, right? When you're when you're Joe Biden and and looking at a job approval rating like he is. Yeah, look, and Obama looks like he's having fun. I've seen him in a couple of rallies over the weekend. I've never seen him more relaxed. Don't they always, though? I'm not sure I've seen him more funny. Well, after the after the president. The, yeah. Always? After they're, right. <laughs> after a candidate has lost right. slash leaves office, you always say, gosh, why weren't they like that when they were a candidate, right? Well, I don't, I don't think that about Trump. He does not seem happy and relaxed. Okay, Okay, fair. I think about Bob Dole. I think about Hillary Clinton. You know, Hillary Clinton's post-2008 primary speech, when she conceded. Yeah, of course. That was probably the best speech she gave the entire campaign. And it was almost as if she were sort of freed. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, the number of people, and I remember thinking this at the time, wow, what if that Hillary Clinton had been on the trail? So there is a certain amount of freedom you get when, right? Freedom's just another way of nothing left to lose or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Janis Joplin. That's right. That's a good Janis Joplin. So the, the reason I was asking about Obama is, does it suggest anything about the nervousness that Mark Kelly and his folks have, or is it more about the gubernatorial race? Oh, it's probably about both. And 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 quite frankly, you know, 
if you're looking at Arizona, a state that in 2020, 2018, right, two different kinds of years, but let's call 2018 the best uh, Democratic year we've had in the last four years, and 2020 a medium year, good year, um, Democrats won by the narrowest of margins, right? So getting just a one or two point win in that state is is actually is I mean if you get a three point win that's like a landslide, um, <laughs> so you know this thing is close every year. So you're doing if if I am the Kelly campaign I am doing absolutely everything I can to wring every single vote out of whatever my targeted precincts are, right? Whatever it takes, just to even get 100 extra votes. Um, you don't want to leave anything on the field. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Amy Walter after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. You wrote just five days ago about a conversation you had with a Democratic pollster. <laughs> I want to repeat it to you and ask you how accurate this is. You said this pollster said to you, uh, for Democrats, things look merely dire for Democrats instead of catastrophic. And dire, this person told me, means a GOP gain of up to, tw of up to 20 House seats, but continued Democratic control of the Senate. Right. Is that a reasonable analysis? Um, I think it's... It's a reasonable analysis. Let me put it this way. I would not be surprised to see anything from, yeah, Democrats lose 15 to 25 seats. The Senate is 50-50 to uh, Republicans win 25 seats and uh, Republicans have a one-seat majority. They could also have a two-seat majority. I mean, this is the thing That's we're talking about. Is that that big it's a not that big of a range, right? <laughs> okay. Because, yeah. and yet it has such a big impact, 
right? This is the thing when we, I, when you look back at you know previous elections and even 2010, where Democrats were able to hold the Senate that year, that's what a lot of folks are making the the correlation or the um, the comparison between this year and 2010 when. Democrats lost the House, lost a lot of seats in the House, but held on to the Senate because Republicans nominated a lot of really weak candidates. But Democrats also lost a lot of seats that year in the Senate. It's just that they had a huge margin, right? They started out with 59 seats, so they could afford to lose an incumbent or an, uh, a Senate seat here or there. That's not so true for Democrats, unless, of course, they play well in a place like Pennsylvania. You know, Great. I, I think about politics sometimes like baseball, where we spend, you said, what can happen in these next eight days? I think about it like, well, we're in the eighth inning. We're really probably in the ninth inning. And if all we knew was, if, if all we did was watch the game starting in the ninth inning, I would say, oh my gosh, that person just hit a walk-off home run. That's why the Phillies won, right? Or the Astros won. It would be a fairer, what would be fairer is to go and say, well, let's start with inning number one, right? Where the pitcher walked three people. Let's go to inning two where the shortstop bobbled the double play. Let's go to inning three where this guy who was supposed to be our best hitter struck out, right? And you put all those pieces together and you go, gosh, if you just changed one of those innings, right? So I think about Republicans in the Senate and Let's just have let's let's put this conversation in place. What would have happened if Pat Toomey or Rob Portman or Richard Burr didn't retire this year? Yeah. Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina, not in contention. Those are off the table. OK, yep. what would have happened if Doug Ducey ran for the Senate in Arizona instead of Blake Masters or Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, would have run instead of Dan Boldick? They're the nominee in New Hampshire for Republicans. What if instead of Dr. Oz, Republicans nominated a different candidate there? David McCormick. Dave McCormick. They almost did. So each one of those things has had an impact on the likelihood of the Senate flipping as much as, well, what are we talking about in the last five days? Or what's the momentum like? Or how much money has somebody raised or what are they closing with? I also think what's important in these last days is what is the sort of mood? What are people talking about? Right. And you could feel over the course of the summer, this like change in intensity from and focus from one that had been all about how much Democrats were screwing up. Right. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and the filibuster yeah. and BBB is dead and there's monkeypox and there's inflation and they're terrible. Afghanistan, right? Everything's terrible. The administration's messing up everywhere. Democrats are in disarray. And then we move to the summer and it's like, well, look at this. Stuff's getting passed <laughs> through Congress. Look at this. We're talking a lot more about Donald Trump than we are about Joe Biden. And of course, we're talking about uh, a 50-year precedent being overturned in the Supreme Court. And that, you could feel that energy sort of change the- In, in favor of the Democrats. Exactly. But has, has that ebbed since then? Yes. 
It definitely has. And when you talk to folks on the... Why is that? I think one, just in terms of it, you're, what, you're, what are you bumping up with day to day, right? I think the reason we talk about the economy being so important, you know, the economy is always an issue. Everybody every year says, of course, I'm voting on the economy. But, you know, when it's something like unemployment or... Um, you know, there's we're in a slowdown, recession. That that certainly impacts a lot of people. But when it's inflation, it's just a constant irritant, right? It is something that is with you every single day. Yeah. Every time you go to the grocery store, every time you pay your rent check. And now put on top of it the Fed's actions. And if you were hoping this is the year I'm gonna buy a house, yep. and you go, Wait, it's now 7%? Man, right? It all feels, it's just in your face. You know, we haven't had this level of inflation for 40 years. I am older than 40 years old. So am I. So am I. Right. <laughs> I, I, re- I don't remember it in that I wasn't old enough to be out of my house. We were kids. Do you? I remember my parents being unhappy. I remember them being very sure. unhappy. Absolutely. And I remember being in church and listening to the pastor talk about uh, people who had lost their jobs and taking care of families in the community. And so, but I didn't, I mean, I understood it, but I didn't totally appreciate it in the way of like, now I go to fill up my, you know, me as an adult for these last 40 years, I haven't had to experience that. This is a brand new thing. But you know, more relevant to this conversation I remember my parents being unhappy and then my dad will correct me if I'm wrong uh, because he listens every week. But my recollection is that we're a democratic family, have been a democratic family for a long time. I think my parents voted for Reagan. Yep. They definitely voted for Reagan in 84. Hmm. I think they voted for Reagan in 80 Hmm. because inflation was through the roof Mm -hmm. and the misery Mm -hmm. index was terrible. Mm -hmm. And so is there an argument that this is not going to come as any solace to any Democrats, but is is there an argument given economic circumstances the Democrats are actually doing pretty well and overperforming. That's a that's an excellent point. And I think that is a fair assessment that if I had just said to you, look, I'm going to and we don't know what the final answer is. But looking at the polls today, the fact that the president is at 42 percent job approval rating, that we have consumer confidence and right direction, wrong track at some of the lowest levels we've seen in many, many years and that we have a record level of inflation that's been persistent for a year, right? If you were a political scientist, you would say, well, the out party, the, the party in power is going to get crushed in these midterms. There's not even a question, right? Historically, that's always been true. Historically, that's going to be true. And what may, that that is still a possibility, right? That if we wake up the day after the election, and it is big losses for Democrats, Republicans make big gains. And again, within a range, it's not going to be picking up 15 Senate seats and right 62 seats in the House. But if it's bigger than what we expect, it will be exactly because of, of what we're talking about, that there's a reason that historically it is hard, not just when you're the party in power, but you're the party in power during record economic challenges. You know, when I talked to Republicans about the 2010 election, I was talking to a pollster recently, 
who said, you know, I know that Obamacare, it was the focus of 2010, and obviously it gets the the blame for Democrats' defeat in 2010. But he said, what you really have to remember is it's that voters were uh, underneath it all. It was a frustration about the state of the economy and a feeling that things were still very much off track. And that was as much of a driver as why did he do Obamacare? In fact, underneath the Obamacare worries were he's spending too much time on this and not enough time on right getting our jobs back, getting the yeah. economy back on track. But, but isn't it true – would you agree that – and maybe I'm wrong about this – that one of the reasons Obama won in the first place in 2008 was we were on the heels of that financial crisis and people thought Obama would be better, yeah. which is unusual generally speaking – then McCain. McCain did not yeah. come across looking as strong on being the steward during that difficult time. So that was about the economy also. It was. And yet I also think it was a time that people – look, it's it's George W. Bush in office. He's been there for eight years. A sense of fatigue about the way that the Republicans have led the country. Iraq, obviously, was the sort of driver of it. You have Katrina – and then the economy, just a sense like Republicans have lost their way. And 2006 was the precursor to that. Yeah. And then it continued in 2008. So, yes, I think what we also have to appreciate is that these midterm elections are very rarely predictive of the next election, right? Because after 1994, remember everybody said, oh, what a disaster. Bill Clinton, he's never going to get reelected. Right. Well, it's very funny because – Essentially, what you're saying is a presidential election is pretty predictive about the midterms because it goes the other way, but mm. the reverse is not true. The reverse is not true, right? Because the idea in a presidential election, well, here's part of why uh, midterms are s usually uh, easier to predict in terms of going against the party in power. Two things happen. Um, one, the party in power gained a bunch of seats in the presidential election. That didn't happen, obviously, in 2020. So the good news for Democrats is they're actually starting with fewer vulnerable seats than they did in 1994 or 2010. That helps keep the range of seat losses lower. Um, the second is we've become much more polarized than we were even in 2010 with fewer defectors like your parents saying, well, if I'm a Democrat, then I am going to be a Democrat no matter what. And I don't care. Yeah. Well, for the young people out there, can we remind them of a term that I remember hearing when I first became aware of politics? I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. Reagan Democrats. Right. That was a real class of folks. Right. Now We don't have Obama Republicans, do we? Um, <laughs> we do. So. Well, you know who we have? We have um, Romney Democrats. And I call them Romney Democrats because Romney was the last Republican they voted for. And, you know, they live in – we know where many of these folks live, right? Upscale suburbs. Mm -hmm. We also can look at maybe Obama or Clinton Latinos, right, who have not voted for a Democratic presidential candidate since then um, and may still be voting Republican. It's just that it it is not as – like we're – when we play – not play politics, but when we look at politics now, the play is so small, right? The movement is so small. That's what I mean by play. So if you think about 1980 and 1984 
1988, these big landslide elections, that those just don't happen anymore. I was going to ask you that. It, you know, it, literally, I jotted down a question because we were talking about Reagan a minute ago. Reagan won 49 states <laughs> right. in 1984. And it's, right. again, for people who were more recently aware of politics, that sounds so absurd. It doesn't it? It sounds crazy. Sounds crazy. Not only that, go back a few years more. In 1972, mm-hmm. Nixon won the country by 49 states. Yep. And within two years had to leave in disgrace and resign. Yep. There's never a time again, Mm-mm. or at least in the foreseeable future, nope. you're going to have somebody win 49 states, right? Absolutely not. I mean, the only real, to me, in the foreseeable future, the one thing that could sort of mess this up or uh, maybe make things more unpredictable is a third-party candidate who takes enough of the vote in these states to make the winner more unpredictable, right? In It kind of in the way Perot did in 1992. But that is um, so, I think it's, it's, is so important. Or I even think about 1998. Again, I don't think of it as being that long ago, but considering the fact that the young people in my office weren't even born in 1998, <laughs> um, this is a you know this is ancient history to them. But, you have depressed me multiple times. Oh, I know it. Uh, but you know, Bill Clinton is getting impeached, and he has a 60. To 63% job approval rating. Yeah. Because people separated that. They said, I don't like what he did, but the economy's good and things seem to be going well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think he's, yeah, whatever. I don't like him personally, but I think he's doing a good job. And that is getting harder and harder to find because what Democrats say, well, inflation isn't a top issue for me. Well, there are Democrats who are feeling the pinch of inflation just as much as Republicans are. Yeah, of course. Right? But they are saying I, I, it would I I can't vote for a Republican because either one they believe they'd make it worse or they would take us on an agenda doesn't have anything to do with the economics, but any sort of agenda that would be, you know, outside of yeah. of the norm. Is there any race in the House, the Senate, or other statewide level that you think has the possibility to surprise folks the most? Hmm. Like, is, is there one race that's more volatile than others where it's just difficult for experts like you to really predict? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, look, I think Georgia is confounding. Georgia which? Georgia both governor and Senate? Georgia Senate. Okay. Georgia Senate because – Herschel Walker, remind me, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock is incumbent. Um, You know, for weeks, maybe months now, the Republican incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, has been leading Stacey Abrams, the Democrat. In many polls, he's up at 51, 52 percent. This might be a five or six point race at the the end of the day. Um, It could get closer, but he's been pretty consistently ahead. Yet, the Senate race has been, you know, neither of those candidates has been able to break 49%, I think. And we know that if you don't hit 50%, if no candidate gets 50% of the vote, we go to a runoff. Right. Now, there's some people saying, well, maybe Herschel Walker will get the benefit of the doubt from these Kemp voters, that at the end of the day, these Kemp voters, maybe 
they're not crazy about Herschel Walker, but that they hold their nose and vote for him because they vote just straight down the ticket for, you know, we need to go Republican. But we've seen in the past, again, even in years that were really bad for the party in power, voters pretty comfortably splitting their tickets, saying, you know, I'm going to elect this Democratic governor, but I'm going to elect a Republican to the Senate or vice versa, right? That they can make that difference of in their head between federal and and national. But we don't really know. And and Georgia's also hard to predict because it's just recently become this battleground, right? This isn't like one of these states yeah. that year after Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, right? Michigan, year after year after year, we go in and we know, all right, this is what it's looked like in the past. Now- it's, it's a little, Is Georgia a little bit like Virginia was a few years ago? Yeah. You know what makes um, Georgia even harder is that you've got one Big population center that keeps growing and growing and growing. And if you've ever been to Atlanta recently, the suburbs just keep expanding, right? Yeah. But it has a lot of rural, a lot. And the share of the vote coming from rural and Atlanta, you know, again, you just shift it two or three points. That was the difference in the 2020 runoff was that the vote from more rural North Georgia just didn't come in in the runoff. And, you know, the blame goes to Donald Trump for basically saying the election was rigged. I should have won. Right. Not a great way to motivate your voters to get out and vote by telling them that the whole process is is rigged. So it's that that balance is a very, very tricky one to figure out. And as I said, it's still pretty brand new. And you've got this coalition for Democrats, at least in the Trump era, that was black voters, suburban uh, college white voters, and increasingly these suburbs. I mean, these are incredibly diverse suburbs with big uh, Asian-American communities, Latino communities. So the state is changing a lot. Obviously, you've got a lot of growth there. So it's a really fun state. Arizona, the same. I love new swing states because they give us, right, just these new demographics and dynamics that, you know, change not just the balance of power in the Senate or the House, but also they're going to be critical battleground states for the presidential. You know, I'm going to take as given that you have a deep interest in politics mm. because you you run the Cook Political Report, soon to be known as the Walter Political <laughs> Report. But my, I have a personal question for you. You spend all your days in professional time, maybe even not your professional time. I don't know if there's a distinction between professional and otherwise. <laughs> uh, on Saturday evening, I'm, I'm, I'm betting you're checking social media and the news and hearing about races. So it's hard to get away from it. How do you feel about American politics? Do you find it, mm. do you find it fun? Do you find it infuriating? Do you find it inspiring? Do you find it disappointing? Do you find it all of those things? Mm. Yeah, it's an important question. And I have for so many years, because it is my job, got an ability to really detach what I do for a job from my feelings about America, right? America as a country, as uh, as it's the institutions, et cetera, because what I was covering were individual races and the bigger, broader question of who does America elect. But now the level of um, of vitriol, 
the anger and I guess maybe what it really is, is the lack of empathy that has made this a harder business. One of the things I loved about covering politics, and it's why I got into it, and it's still what I love, is understanding what makes people want to run, first of all, I find fascinating, what they do when they get there, and how do voters process information? What we ask voters to do is pretty ridiculous, right? We say, <laughs> we say you get a binary choice. You get X or Y. And all of the all of these very complicated, complex issues that you have in your own head, right? In your own brain, you can believe X about one thing, Y about another, Z about this. You can't do that in voting. You have to go with one or the other. As somebody said to me, who's a media consultant, they said, well, you think politics is negative and you hate, everybody says they hate negative ads. Let me tell you something. If we had to vote this year on America getting one soft drink, okay, for four <laughs> years, Pepsi versus Coke, you Diet don't Coke. think, <laughs> right. That's well, clear. That's a clear answer. It's a clear answer for you. <laughs> you imagine what that would look like, the war between the two, right? And because Guess what, Pre? You could never find if if Diet Coke lost, you could never get a Diet Coke for four years, right? You'd be like, "That's insane." Yeah, that I, sucked, I, that I, would suck pretty bad. And by the way, they're not an advertiser on this show. Well, but I'm a yeah, big Diet Coke I, fan as that's well. That's what I drink. So that is so we're asking voters to do this really complicated thing. But I think what voters appreciated, or at least it feels like what they got in return was they voted for somebody who maybe they didn't agree with on every single one of the issues, but they felt like was going to look out for their interests. And now with politics being as nationalized as it is, it's not quite clear what what is that, what is the interest, right? When I started covering the House, what I loved about it is everyone would come in and they would talk to me about the very specific things about their district, right? Like, let me tell you about all of the military installations we have. I learned when talking to California candidates about fish ladders, right? Getting fish from one side of the dam to the other. Or you learn about ag issues in the Midwest. Or, you know, you learn about the role that trade plays in some of these um, bigger urban areas. And they all come with that focus. Now I feel like they have to come in with a, I'm here to either one, you know, cheer on my team, protect my team, or protect a certain way of life for a certain part of the country. I got to protect small town values. I have to protect the diversity of urban and suburban America. And you're not getting the crossover conversations because you don't have people within the parties that represent different areas anymore. Yeah. And and so again, giving people, that's why I said empathy, giving people the benefit of the doubt, starting a conversation on less of an accusatory note, but starting it with a, well, that tell me why you think that. I'm interested in how you got to this, <laughs> right? That's uh not happening as much anymore. So it's yeah. it is harder. Let me ask you this question. Given your expertise and your deep knowledge of politics in covering it, have you ever been approached by a politician who says, hey, why don't you come work for me and help me get elected? Mm, no, people ask, do you want to run for office? Well, that's coming. I was going to ask that second. But Absolutely you, not. 
No one's ever, even even in the early days when you were less famous, nobody said, hey, you seem very smart. Uh, nobody said, hey, come and, come and work for me. No, <laughs> I, I actually have not. Now, you know, I, I think some of it is that, I don't know, I, I guess they realize like, this job seems a lot more fun <laughs> than, <laughs> than what you would have to do yeah, with I me. Just sort of, I just sort of thought at some point along the way, somebody would have said, maybe you're, you're smarter than the people <laughs> working for me now. You can analyze the state better than I can. Maybe, but I think people also recognize like, you know, what you get to do gives you the freedom to say these things. And that's, I think once you pick a team, yeah. even if you're doing your very best to stay balanced, it's really hard to stay completely balanced. Well, so do you do you have a team and just not say, or do you try really, really hard not to have a what team? What I try to do is put myself into that state or district and say, like, I'll meet candidates and think, even if I really liked this person, right? They are not right for that district, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not who who these voters like at their core, you know, that's that's not kind of where they are. I think that if I have a default, it is the idea that we can have politics that is rational, right? And that, you know, we do I, I spend most of my time, not surprisingly, with the sort of swing states and swing districts. So that means I spend most of my time with the moderates, right? On the D's and the R's, or the people that are at least not on the far extremes. That's really kind of the one. I thought they're, it's much more interesting, honestly, because they actually have to work to keep their seats. But that's sort of what I think our ideal of politics is, right? People who they go into every election knowing that to win, they can't completely alienate a group of voters, and they can't only speak to one type of person. And there used to be more of those, you know? Yeah. And that's what was fun is how does this person keep winning in a state like this? How does this person hold on to a district that voted for Republicans by 20 points? Well, that's what, let me ask you a specific question then, and I'll invoke a name that a lot of people on the left hate. Right. And it's a senator from West Virginia, Joe right. Manchin. Right, right. I mean, by your telling, for the last couple of minutes, he's someone who should be applauded. Right. And for, which I think is fair. Yeah. And I think if you say on the on the right, who did they hate? Of course, they hated John McCain. They obviously hate Lisa Murkowski or Liz Cheney, who Democrats now apparently adore. And uh, what I love is when- <laughs> Adore I'll, is strong. I well, okay. Adore. But when I, I talk- respect. respect. But it's so funny. I'll, I'll get people come up to me and- like Republicans will come up to me and say, you know, I think that if Democrats were smart, they'd run Joe Manchin for president, right? And I go- The base would stay home. <laughs> I said, right. I said, you know why that won't happen? Why? Because you like Joe Manchin. See, the fact that you like Joe Manchin guarantees that they do not like him. And same with Liz Cheney. Well, I wish that Liz Cheney would run. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, you like her, which means- that she is not liked by the base, right? Let me ask you a final question. And I don't mean to pry into your social life. But mm, of which I have really none, but go ahead. Well, maybe this answers the question then. Do you find it hard to go to parties? And, and I'll, uh, the reason I'm asking is, 
<laughs> Particularly around election time, if you were to go to a party or a social event, do you get cornered by 11 people asking you all the questions that I asked you on the podcast? Who's going to win? Who's up? Who's down? Yes. What's the state of politics? And so does that, A, does that happen? And B, is it annoying? And should, should I tell people <laughs> who encounter Not you at a to party do that. <laughs> to leave you alone and let you have your crew to take? Uh, right. There are times when it's an interesting conversation, right? So that you know that, uh, especially if it's, if you corner me because pre, you're like, listen, I just spent a month in Atlanta. Here's what I heard and saw. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That would be great. Uh, versus, well, aren't Republicans going to win all of these seats? I, 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 don't, I don't know. <laughs> or the, well, tell me what's going to happen. And in this like accusatory way, like I, 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 my, I, I'm giving you all. All of the analysis I can, I cannot tell you for certain these things are going to happen, right? And um, I think that's the other thing we've, again, when we first started and, and you know, covering politics, it was both more complicated. You would think it'd be more complicated because people were willing to switch parties and, as you said, or at least switch, you know, split their tickets, but actually, it's gotten harder now because so few people do. So it means yeah. our politics are more calcified than ever. But it also means, to your point, that you could have an election where, look, in 2018, again, if I said to you, boy, you have a president who a majority of Americans think is doing a good job on the economy. We have record consumer confidence. Do you think that president's party will be rewarded in the midterms? Yeah, sure. Okay, well, they got crushed and lost 40 seats in the House <laughs> because people didn't like Donald Trump, the person, right? Yeah. And it also didn't help that Republicans passed an unpopular bill to roll back the Obamacare. But my point being, it was it almost easier when you said you could look at the mood of the or the of the economy and say, well, that's going to tell us all we need to know. It's not. I'm going to end by saying the following and promise you that if I run into you at a party, <laughs> I may corner you, but I will hector you only about mounds and almond joy. Okay. Thank you. And if you have extras, <laughs> I'll give you my mailing address and you just ship them to me. Okay. I will do that. Amy Walter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And I hope I hope you get a chance to relax after the election. I'm going to try. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, I know the news about politics lately can feel overwhelming. I feel that way too. So to end the show this week, I want to turn your attention to a completely different story. Some of my favorite things to hear about and tell you about are stories of young people doing incredible things. This week, I want to tell the story of a young boy named Arsh Paul of Dubuque, Iowa. As told by the Washington Post, Arsh loves to paint. And four years ago, when he was just eight years old, he set out to make $1,000 for charity by selling his artwork. He had the idea after being inspired by visiting a local nursing home where his mother worked. Now, at 12 years old, He's raised a whole lot more than that. According to the article, he's raised more than $15,000 and 
and sold hundreds of paintings through his fundraising initiative called Art by Arsh. He sells at local establishments in his area, art shows, and on Facebook and Instagram. And except for what he spends on supplies, all of the money he makes from selling his work, he donates to charities that support kids. He's donated to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Compass to Care, and the Make-A-Wish Foundation, among other organizations. Arsh started with watercolors, but now paints mostly with acrylics. There are photos of some of his paintings in the article I read, and they are really amazing. He does some abstract pieces and some very detailed pieces. He clearly has a range and a vivid and beautiful imagination, not to mention serious talent. According to his mother, Arsh's friends ask him why he doesn't keep the money and buy things for himself. Arsh never wanted to do that. He wants to help people. In addition to his art sales, Arsh also started teaching art lessons at the nursing home where his mother works, the place that inspired him to start his fundraising efforts in the first place. He wants to make art accessible to anyone who wants to express themselves. Arsh told the Washington Post, young people have the power to change the world. And so he's trying to do just that, one painting at a time. Young people seeking to change the lives of other young people. Now that's pretty amazing. Arsha's story is a reminder that any of you, no matter how old you are or how young you are, can have a positive impact on the people around you. If you care about making a difference, there is always a way. And if you want to learn more about Arsh and his work, check out the link in the show notes to this episode. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Amy Walter. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.